there is no hope, and therefore sometimes uh, things pop up that we hadn't expected. And one of them is the DVD that we want to show tonight. Uh, that Betty, how do you pronounce it? Heliopolis. Okay. Brought. Um, to me last week, and I looked at it, and I thought, gee, this is something that is really worthwhile. Also, on the other hand, was, we were going to talk about four different modern-day saints, or relatively modern-day saints, but two of them we've already discussed somewhat about, uh, and that is Captain St. Catherine Drexel uh, was discussed in the DVD that we saw presented by Father Robert Barron. And uh, we've also talked uh, somewhat about uh, Padre Peel. So that leaves the two others, uh, Father Damien of Molokai and uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Ann Seaton. And so we'll talk about those two people next week, all right? But tonight I would like to show this DVD, but I want to talk a little bit about it before we show it so that, first of all, you're not disappointed. One of, it is a lot of Spanish within the DVD, but it is also translated, so uh, you will get to know what is being said. The other thing is, you've got to be very con uh, aware, I should think, that the Spanish people, or the Aztec people of the 15th and 16th century, were very much involved in uh, astrology, okay? Not astronomy, but that was a part of it too. But astrology, that is the meaning of the stars and the direction of the planets, etc. Uh, and that is used to some degree in here to appeal to those same people. Uh, it, we would consider it to be superstition today. Uh, but it isn't. It isn't superstition, as you will see. Uh, scientists have examined uh, the meaning of the stars uh, on the gown of Our Lady and some of the other significant symbols used in the picture. Now, this is a story about Juan Diego who was the uh, Mexican peasant, the Aztec peasant back in the 16th century, uh, who, to whom the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared and asked for a, a house. A house, in this case, uh, of course, grew into uh, a magnificent cathedral. Uh, and she has been designated as, as Our Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, of course, we in English say Guadalupe, but uh, the Spanish people pronounce it Guadalupe, and that's the way she's been known ever since. Uh, I think it's very interesting. Now, part of the reason I want to show this is because we have not talked about Mary as being a saint, People, Catholics particularly, do not think of Mary as the saint, and yet she is the queen of all saints. So that is one of her many uh, titles, queen of all saints, all right, because she is a human being 
We do not worship Mary. She is not a goddess of any kind. Uh, she is just a human being, but a very special human being created by God to carry his divine son. And because of that, she had to be created uh, perfect because of the nature of her mission. And that was to carry the divine son and bear him and then raise him uh, to adulthood. Okay. That had to be done by somebody who was free of all sin. And that could only be done by a special intervention of God himself. And so if you really search the scriptures, you will see that Mary is referred to right in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in the discussion of God the Father against Adam and Eve and the serpent, where he says, where God the Father says that a woman bearing a son will crush the head of the serpent. She's also mentioned in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, as a woman appearing with uh, the moon under her and 12 stars over her. All right, The whole idea of the moon and the stars really harkens back to the idea of Our Lady of Guadalupe and the Immaculate Conception. They are all very intricate linked and so uh, with that I want to show this DVD and then we will have a discussion afterwards again you have to listen rather carefully because uh, it isn't the best um, quality uh, recording and there's a lot of background music that I think they could have eliminated but uh, that's the way it goes okay so with that, if you wish to change, move your chairs around,
quite laid over it to the bishop, but obviously it was not easy for him to obtain an audience. Finally, he was received, but the bishop did not believe him and said, I will listen to you later when I have time. So, one Diego, disappointed, returned to the mountain. That same day, he climbed Mount Tepeyaca once again, and once again met Mary. Juan Diego humbly asked whether it would be better to send someone more important than himself. But Mary answered, Tomorrow, return to the bishop and tell him that I want my little sacred house, my little temple. The next day, Sunday afternoon, Juan Diego returned to the bishop. He did not believe him and said, Bring me proof, a sign, so that I can believe that it is truly the Lady of Heaven who sent you. Sent to him. 
It was late on the morning of December the 12th when Juan Diego ran back to the bishop to take him those wonderful Castilian roses, which had never grown on Mount Tepeyac, especially in midwinter. When he reached Sumarica's palace, the Amerindian had to wait a long time before he was received. Thank you. 
is the preparation that painters have to carry out to eliminate the irregularities in the fabric. Having cut only the interstices, I create a suitable surface so that the paint will stick so that it will fix. In the case of the Dilmar, already in 1666 there was proof that this preparation did not exist. Even the brilliance of the colors of the image of Guadalupe does not seem to obtain to a time. We have descriptions of what it looked like throughout history, and the colors are still the same. There are paintings that preserve their colors because they have a base of paint, a final varnish that preserves the colors. But even so, the varnish that was applied oxidizes your time. In painting, to create a sense of volume and depth, layers of color are used, various brushstrokes of different hues. Such as the rays of the sun, the stars on the cloak, 
on the moon under the Virgin's feet. But in that case, how can we explain that all the copies of the painting, even very close to the time it was created, show all the elements of the original image? One of the most ancient copies, certainly realized prior to 1571, is held in Italy, in the province of Genoa. This image came to Italy through Philip II in Spain, who received it as a gift from the second bishop of the city of Mexico. Philip II in turn gave it to an admiral of his fleet, who was Genovese Andrea Doria. Tradition says that Andrea Doria carried this image with him, hanging it in the principal galleon of the Catholic fleet of the waters of Lepanto, where Christianity conquered the Turks. In the 70s, Father Mario Rojas, an expert in the Aztec population, showed that the image of Guadalupe is a true Mesoamerican code full of symbols from Renawati culture. It's not everything that we find in the image of Our Lady has a meaning. The colors of her garments represent reality, the blue turquoise color or the jade, which was much more valuable than gold. The pinky color of the gang symbolizes the Amora, meaning that the Virgin, with her apparition, announces the birth of the Son of God. Also, in the color of the aurora, she carries the seven flowers. There are three types of flower. In the Mexican signs, the most important is the Naomi olive flower. It has four petals with a center. The four petals represent the cardinal points, that is the eternal movement of God, the center of the cosmos. This, for the Mexicans, meant that it was the most important thing that she had, as if she was saying, I am having the God child, the Son child, so that he can be born here with you, so that you can know him. And they understood this perfectly with the Naoi Oli in the flower. Even the shape of the flowers on the Virgin's garments has a precise meaning. The sterile flowers are called this because they have the shape of the mountains. This is how the mountains were shown on the maps. What they look like with little pointed peaks. And with this, she wanted to say, Tepe peak of the mountain, or pointed mountain. Father Chavez exalts the most important meaning of these flowers that all the native people called Floricanto. Si la señal para el obispo son las flores, the sign of the bishop was the flowers, and the land like the Tepeya, arid, dusty, salmitrous, where there was no life, and yet flowers grew, while for the native peoples, glory gather meant truth. The sign, therefore, was much more potent, much stronger than the native mentality over the Spanish lands. They said, I can't see the roots, but I understand that there is life in that root. So, the sign that the Virgin was sending to the vision was the sign of truth. The Amerindians understood this because it was part of their life, their culture. 
they understood perfectly that not only was the figure noble, but also that she was an empress, because only the emperor, Moctezuma, could use the azure cloak, which meant the sky dotted with emeralds. That is, it became a turquoise color. It also meant that she was a mother, because she was pregnant with the omnipotent god, since her four-petaled flower was present. That she was a virgin, like a maiden, because of the loose hair combed down, which meant virginity. So the Amerindians saw in the hair virginity and in the belt maternity. In fact, in the Aztec culture, when a woman was pregnant, she wore a dark purple ribbon around her waist, a mystery also lies in the stars on the cloak. Dr. Juan Romero Hernandez Yescas carried out a specific study in cooperation with two doctors in astrophysics, Cato Ia and Armando Garcia de Leon of the Autonomous National University of Mexico. The researchers began by calculating the date and the position of the stars corresponding to the winter solstice of 1531. In fact, they knew that for the Aztecs, the winter solstice meant the birth of the new sun. The light that rediscovers strength and vigor, and it was therefore a very important moment of the year. The scholars discovered that in 1531, the solstice occurred precisely on December the 12th, the day of the miracle of Juan Diego's Timur. It is interesting to me that the winter solstice should have taken place on the 22nd instead of on the 12th. The astronomers of the Mexico Observatory have said that the solstice occurred on the 12th because we have not yet changed from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian. This occurred 50 years later. As the Nikan Mopoa tells, the miracle took place in the late morning. We must remember that at this time we cannot see the stars, so what we do is simply reconstruct the position of the stars in a planetarium. In observing the constellations that could be seen at that time in the territory of the Mexico Valley, Dr. Hernandez discovered something surprising. The sky coincided with the stars present on the cloak of the Virgin. On the left-hand side of the cloak, we see the southern constellations, four stars that are part of the Africa constellation. Below, we can see Libra, and on the right, one of the stars of the Scorpion. At the height of the hour, we can see two stars of the Lupus constellation and the tip of Hydra. Lower down is the slightly inclined quadrant of the Sagittarius constellation, and we can perfectly see the Southern Cross. In the lower part, solitary shines Sirio. On the right-hand side of the cliff, we can see the northern constellations. On Mary's shoulder, a fragment of the constellation of Borte. Then, moving downwards, there was a perfect representation of the Great Bear constellation, surrounded top right by the Chioma Berenice, and below by the Canis Venetici. On the left, Thuban, the brightest star of the Dragon constellation. Below, two stars that form part of the Great Bear, and at the bottom, three stars from Taurus. There are some difficulties, because as you know, the sky is concave, and, and when it is flattened out, it takes on another shape. Initially, attempts were made to represent the stars as we see them from the Earth, but that doesn't work. In fact, it is as if it were a mirror. 
The stars on the Virgin's cloak exactly reproduce the position of the constellations at the time of the apparition, but looking at them from space and not from Earth. Even the moon present in the image corresponds to its astronomical position in the sky on December 12, 1531. When Our Lady appeared in the winter solstice, the moon was in its first quarter. This is also stated by Gutierre Tibon, explaining that Mexico means navel of the moon. The image of Our Lady herself is a code. Code is a book in which there are no letters, but only drawings, each with its own meaning. If the gown is the plan of the earth, then the stars on the blue cloak are the plan of the heavens. The cultures that developed in Mesoamerica were closely linked to the observation of the sky, observation of the stars. In fact, they even determined the synodal cycle of Venus, Mars, and Jupiter. And they managed to observe the movements of the heavenly poles. The people were permeated by all this astronomic activity. This made it possible, for example, to set the dates of religious festivities or civil activities, and obviously the sowing and harvesting of crops. They determined the astronomical cycles of the conjunction of the planets. They constructed a calendar that could be seen as a lunar solar calendar. That is, it was related to the cycle of the sun, of the moon, and with the cycle of Venus. The year 1531 must have been a very special year in a complex Aztec cosmogony. In fact, the winter solstice was registered under conjunction of the Sun and Venus. An astronomic event registered every 104 years of extraordinary importance for the Aztecs, since it meant the start of a new era. So, the Aztecs had already foreseen that a new era would start in that particular year. El calendario de tierra, el calendario solar, el calendario de los astrónomos, el calendario solar, el astrónomo, shows that a new era begins in the 13th house Kanya, corresponding to 1531. In 1521 was the conquest of Mexico. It was a terrible, horrendous time for the native people. Not only because they had been overcome in war but also because they already knew, according to their religious concepts, of the fifth sun, that is to say the sun, the historical period, the era in which they lived, was coming to an end. Both in the image of the Virgin and in the story of the apparitions, we find various references to the best-loved divinity of the Aztecs. The goddess Tonatzin, whose festivity was associated with the winter solstice, Tonantzin, the mother of all the gods, was a goddess whose temple stood on the slopes of Tehya. It even seems that the Amerindians initially called Guadalupe by the name of this goddess, almost recognizing the same divinity in her. They gave her a native name, Tonantzin Guadalupe. Tonantzin is not a name, but a title. Our little mother in a reverential form. So, who could have painted this image, which represents a perfect synthesis between a Christian iconography and a Mesoamerican culture? 
who, just ten years after the conquest of Mexico, could have such a profound understanding of the two worlds? Moreover, who could have translated this knowledge into a masterpiece of harmony, such as the image of Guadalupe? The studies of the image of the Morenita have shown that the painting respects what is known as the golden section. A harmonic correspondence between the individual parts and the whole, between the spaces and the volumes, well known to the Greeks, and which can be translated into the golden ratio 1 to 6.18, present in nature, in man, in the galaxies, and even in music. Initially, my husband took as a reference point the scene down the middle. Beginning from this, he found a perfect square, and from here, using a compass, he found another smaller part, which is a rectangle. The total, A plus B, that is the square plus the rectangle, gives us the golden or perfect ratio. In 2008, a mathematician called Fernando Ojeda Ianis, beginning from Pythagoras' studies of mathematics and music, made a sensational discovery. Using the golden rectangle of the image as a starting point, the mathematician obtained a pentagram. Realizing that the symbols of the gown and the stars of the cloak fitted perfectly, like pauses and musical notes. The result was the discovery of a genuine melody in the figure of the Virgin of Guadalupe. But the wonders that surround Guadalupe do not end here. The Peruvian engineer Jose Aste Tosman, taking up studies carried out in the 60s, according to which there are human figures reflected in the eyes of the Virgin, made an exceptional discovery. To carry out this study, I used the technology used in the center where I work, which is known as digital image process. It's the same technology that the NASA uses to study the images sent from space. And many institutions use it to study, for example, microscopic images. At the time we were working on the satellite images of Mexico, for most of the images, I use little squares of pixels, picture elements of 25 by 25 micro, or thousands of millimeters, which give 1600 dots per square millimeter. The images were enlarged 10,000 times and retained very specific details. Following in chronological order, the first figure that I found and that attracted my attention was that of a native man, sitting with his legs crossed as the Mexicans used to do at the time. It is very detailed, 
The seated native wears a ring in his ear. The thickness is as fine as a hair. The professor also identified what is said to be the figure of the bishop, and which corresponds perfectly to paintings from the period in which Juan de Samaria is portrayed. Then there's the figure of Juan Diego with a tumor around his neck. Then I found something that really attracted my attention. It was a black woman who I later found out actually existed in history. Then, near what was supposed to be the bishop, I saw a white man. I later came to know that he could have been an interpreter. We know that Sumaga needed an interpreter. When he spoke to the natives, we know his name. He was called Juan Gonzalez. The last figures discovered by Thompson belonged to a family group. Mother, father, two children, and another pair of adults, where the woman is carrying a child on her back. Altogether, there are 13 human figures to be seen in the eyes of Guadalupe. According to the laws known as Coquine Samson, from the name of the scientists who discovered them, when our eyes reflect something, up to three images of the same object can form. When we look at something, our cognitions behave like two mirrors. They are two crystals that reflect what is in front of us. There is not the same image, the same dimensions in both eyes, because they are separate. That is why we can see in three dimensions. In the eyes of the Virgin, there are 13 joint images. They are grouped in two scenes. One of the questions people often ask is, if the Virgin was in the tomb, how can she see Juan Diego? This is very interesting, because if we analyze the tomb very carefully, we can clearly see that there is no image of the Virgin. It is as if it was just a few instants before the image was impressed. So, the theory is that that virgin is laying from in front of the group, invisible. The Moranita appeared to Juan Diego's uncle and healed him, and revealed her name to him, Guadalupe. But Guadalupe was a very well-known name in Spain, in the region of Extremadura. In fact, it is linked to another apparition of the Virgin, which had its roots in the period in which Luke, the evangelist, was writing his gospel. Not having known Jesus personally, St. Luke interrogated all those who'd had the opportunity to listen to him or to meet him, gathering numerous testimonies. The Apostle St. Paul played a fundamental role in the writing of his gospel. The evangelist accompanied him on his long journeys from Palestine to Greece, asking him numerous questions about Christ and his teachings. He was present when the apostle preached to the people. But above all, the gospel 
Phillips and Luke gives the faithful reconstruction of the stories about the true protagonists of this incredible story, Mary. During their long conversations, she confided to him many details of the life of her beloved son. His childhood, the first sermons. St. Luke carefully noted her words, listening devotedly. That is why his work is also called Mary's Gospel. Apart from being an evangelist, it is said that St. Luke was a doctor and an artist. The Virgin was the subject of many paintings and sculptures attributed to him. It is precisely from one of these works that the incredible story that brings us back to the Virgin of Guadalupe in Mexico begins. It is a little statue portraying the Virgin and Child that was placed beside the body of St. Luke when he died in Thebes. So, how did this artifact from Greece arrive in the Extremadura region of Spain? It is said that the statue was carried from Thebes to Constantinople, together with St. Luke's coffin, on the orders of the Eastern Emperor Constantius in 357 AD. With a great procession, they brought the coffin of Luke into the church with all the imperial court. At the head of the procession was the bishop of Constantinople, Macedonius, who held this statue on high while the procession proceeded towards the central altar. It is known that the statue was later given by the Eastern Emperor Maurice to the future Pope Gregory the Great at the time when he was at the court as the Pope's ambassador. When he returned to Rome, Gregory had two images of the Virgin. One was a painting. The other was a small wooden statue that he took with him to his cell at Celio. Shortly afterwards, in 590 AD, Gregory was elected Pope. But the statue by St. Luke did not remain in Rome for long. Gregory decided to donate it to a friend of his, a very spiritual and intelligent man, Leandro, the Bishop of Seville. She remained on the high altar of the cathedral in Seville for about a century, disappearing during the Arab invasion of Spain. Tradition says that the clerics took it in order to take it to safety. They put it in a sack and fled to the west. They took the old Roman road, the Via de Lusitani, which crossed Portugal from north to south. They stopped in Merida for some time and then continued their flight from the invaders, reaching Cazares in the heart of Extremadura. Following the stream, they came to the edge of a wood and stopped there. They decided that this was a suitable place to hide the precious statue. They began to dig a hole. They pulled out the statue. They looked at it devotedly, knowing that they would never see it again. Then, they put it into the sack and buried it. Mm -hmm. 
Obviously, nothing more is known of this statue, but traces of it have remained in the popular legends of the area, with the people of the area. In fact, they told strange stories, stories that grandparents told the children beside the fire during the winters. They told them a treasure hidden in the woods. For 600 years, the little statue by St. Luke was forgotten until the summer of 1329. Tradition tells that in that year, Kiel Cordero, a herdsman from Cáceres, went into the woods to look for a cow that had strayed from his herd. He wandered around for three long days, walking the rough tracks of Extremadura. Kiel had lost all hope of finding his cow. He walked along this stream, which was now called Guadalupe, because the Arabs had called it Guadalupe. Finally, in a little clearing, he saw his cow lying on the ground, dead. He went over to the cow to skin it, and at least to get some leather, and instead, the cow stood up. It was alive and kicking. Just at that moment, in a blinding light, appeared the Holy Virgin. Mary asked the man to bring the local priests to the clearing and to tell them to dig in exactly the place where the animal had lain, revealing that they would find a wooden statue of her to be venerated. Distraught, Kiel ran towards the village, and the next morning, when he arrived home, he told his wife what had happened. His wife, relieved that her husband had returned, told him that their son, who had been seriously ill, was now better. Kiel went with his friends to announce the incredible fact to the priests of the village. Together they went to the priests, and they told them what the Virgin had said. Emphasizing above all the phrase that the Virgin had pronounced, may a small house be built here where the poor who arrive must be given at least one meal a day. The priests went to the place of the apparition, and when they dug, in effect they found the wooden statue sculpted by St. Luke. Right at that spot, near the Guadalupe River, a first hermitage was built, which soon became a place of great devotion and residence for the very poor. Subsequently, the King and Queen of Spain, Isabella and Ferdinando, had the habit of visiting this century. They even built a house, their residence, and from that place they signed many decrees, many laws. One of these decrees was whether or not to finance the adventure of Christopher Columbus. There are still many proofs of Christopher Columbus's particular devotion to the Virgin of Guadalupe in Extremadura. A significant episode is reported in his ship's log. On his return from discovering the Americas, Christopher Columbus' ship ran into a terrible storm. 
In this tremendous moment of fear, Columbus gathered the crew and swore that if the Virgin Mary saved them from this terrible storm, some of them should make a pilgrimage to sanctuaries in Europe. Columbus kept his promise. He went to the sanctuary of the Virgin of Guadalupe in Extremadura. Cortes also came from the region of Extremadura, like many missionaries sent to the New World. It suggests that it was the Spanish who gave the name of Guadalupe to the Mexican Virgin. Nevertheless, there is proof that the Spanish and even the Franciscan missionaries did not want the Madonna who appeared in Mexico to be called Guadalupe. On the other hand, at that time, the two peoples were still far from knowing and understanding each other. Following the edict of Charles V, the minister of the Franciscans in Spain, Francisco de Los Angeles, sent to the Amerindians a group of missionaries known as the Twelve Apostles of Mexico, but they were not able to convert the population. The first years of evangelization were very difficult. The twelve Mexican apostles could not understand the allegorical significance of the statues, which seemed to them monstrous and diabolical. And the Amerindians themselves, above all the priests, could not understand why these men, so holy, who brought a message of peace, who brought a message of brotherhood, were any different from their white Spanish brothers who tortured, imprisoned, and killed them. Evidently, a similar evangelization was impossible in Titanic. Just think that before 1531, there were 35 Francisco missionaries, only a few Dominicans and some Francis, not more than 50 people altogether to evangelize around 23 million natives. What is more, we know that the Spaniards were a terrible example. They killed each other, they stole from each other, and they committed the greatest and most serious injustices. Sumaya himself was the victim of an attack by the terrible Primera Audiencia, the Spanish government of Mexico, and he wrote to King Charles V, telling him of the tragic situation in the colony. This reference to the bishop is very important. For me, it is the key. That is, the Virgin of Guadalupe came for the Amerindians, who were living the tragedy of the conquest, of the diseases. Their world was collapsing. She also came for the Spaniards, who were destroying each other, and who even tried to kill her own vision. She came to resolve the problems of everyone, not only the native population. She also spoke to the Spaniards of the time, and to the half castes who were being born. Emilia, Two great people united in her, humanly irreconcilable, with different visions, yet distinct cosmogonies, a different concept of God, of man, of nature, and yet in Mary we are all united, in Mary we are integrated. The breadth of the message that the Virgin of Guadalupe incarnated in her image was enormous for Latin America. Guadalupe arrived to give dignity and protection to all, personified with her half-caste creatures, the birth of a new race, the fruit of union and integration. 
this is uh, chapter 11, verse 19, and continuing. It says, Then God's temple in heaven opened, and in the temple could be seen the Ark of the Covenant. There were flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, an earthquake and a violent hailstorm. A great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, because she was with child. <clears throat> she wailed aloud in pain as she labored to give birth. And then another sign appeared in the sky. It was a huge dragon, flaming red, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept a third of the stars from the sky and hurled them down to the earth. And then the dragon stood before the woman about to give birth, ready to devour her child when it should be born. She gave birth to a son, a boy destined to shepherd all of the nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman herself fled into the desert where a special place had been prepared for her by God. There she was taken care of for 1260 days. Uh, who else could that have referred to but the Virgin Mary? And yet it wasn't intended to be that way. It was actually intended to reflect on uh, the church just as in the book of Genesis where it talks about uh, a woman and her child that reflects Judaism coming forth uh, and all of the effects that it had upon history at the time. Uh, the important thing here is really the fact that we have a saint, Juan Diego, and we have the queen of all saints, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And it's important that we kind of understand. And this is the basis really for, as I said earlier, the Immaculate Conception. The fact that God himself fashioned the Virgin Mary uh, to carry his son uh, for nine months in the normal uh, gestation period um, and yet we have uh, we have a lot of uh, God's plan of salvation all wrapped up in this particular person Mary, the mother of God any questions that you might have hopefully I can answer them anyone I'm not I'm not aware of that. Uh, Connie just asked if in Mex in Europe there was people turning away from God, and this was. Uh, God and Mary's way of getting people in the new world uh, to turn toward God. And that could be. I am just not aware of 
that particular aspect of history. But it's interesting, I thought, while I was watching this, <clears throat> that from 1492 to 1531 is uh, approximately 40 years. The proverbial 40 years that is mentioned so often in the Bible. Okay. Uh, so you have a, a, a number of uh, metaphors and symbols uh, both as we've seen here in the DVD um, <clears throat> that go far beyond uh, any explanation uh, of history or anything else that we can think of. Um, and it, I, when I watched it, I was sort of um, aghast at some of the things that appeared almost to be like superstition, and yet they had meaning to the people at that time. It was one of God's ways of uh, turning people who were in uh, a faith and religious system of uh, sacrificing their own children, sacrificing uh, many of their of themselves, and turning to uh, the gods and the sun and the moon and the stars and all of that kind of thing. And I'm speaking of the Aztec people. And now he's bringing them into his fold, his love. Uh, I think it's just marvelous, and it shows how God uses people, particularly the saints, throughout history, throughout the last 2,000 years, uh, in many ways. I'm reading a book about <coughs> Teresa Newman. I'm only halfway through it, but it's uh, fascinating as to uh, not only the uh, affairs of Teresa Newman, who was a great stigmatist uh, in the early part of the 20th century, <coughs> But the book mentions many other people, and some of the many other people who also were stigmatists that are not recognized yet as saints, yet they may still be. Uh, it's also interesting that this book mentions uh, a mystic uh, from Detroit, Michigan, and we feel uh, rather strongly that this is uh, Solanus Casey, the DVD that we had seen earlier. Um, so things really become connected in many ways. And this is God's plan. Nothing is sort of uh, happenstance. Nothing just is accidental. God is really working with us and through us in many ways. And if we allow ourselves to be used by God, he will take advantage of that in many ways. Uh, it might be just simple things. Uh, let me give you a little example. The other day I had a problem. It was a very simple uh, problem, but one that I could not figure out. Have you ever had a, door, a drawer stuck where you couldn't get it open? You know? And I thought, oh, what am I going to do? Uh, there were things in the drawer that I needed, and of course I couldn't get it open because one of the, the handles got hooked up somehow and prevented me from opening it. And 
I tried, and I got the screwdriver out, and I got this out, and got that out, and tried this and that. Nothing worked. So I thought, Lord, help me. I've got to get into this drawer. Um, what can I do? So I thought, I'm going to call my son-in-law. So I call him on the phone, and on his cell phone, and I tell him my problem, and he says, well, I'm only a mile away from your house. How about if I come over right tonight? And he did, and within minutes, he had it resolved. Something that I couldn't do. Uh, he didn't use anything different than I did. Uh, but it happened. He got it on his own. You know. So God uses people. It can be very simple. Don't ever underestimate the power of God using Neighbors, friends, relatives, whatever. All right. Uh, all you have to do is spend some time in prayer and believe. Any questions? Because I've always kind of wondered why it took so long to canonize Juan Diego. There was where John Paul II was one that uh, officiated his canonization, wasn't it? That was, what, 400 years? Uh, at least, yes, because it was, what, uh, 1990, I think he said, yeah. that he was canonized. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea as to why, but I believe <clears throat> that the church waits until there is an occasion or a need, or perhaps until some message is reached by someone in the church that a person should be canonized for whatever reason. I don't know. Uh, but ever since Juan Diego has been canonized, uh, the Mexican government has looked far more favorably towards the church than they ever did before. You know, for many, for many, many years, uh, the church was virtually persecuted by the Mexican government. And now there's uh, much more freedom. Uh, for many years, priests could not wear uh, clerical garments, uh, you know, the Roman collar, etc., on public streets. Uh, they had to wear just casual uh, clothes like everyone else. So, yes, Betty? I, I had a, an interesting experience when I was teaching Spanish, and I was lucky enough to have some Mexican-American students or students who were from Mexico. And one of the things that they used to say, and I'm still not really sure why, but Brett, when a kid was kind of getting over the crossing the line, you know, we were, we were talking about how how um, there are verbal messages that parents give, like we say, when, when Americans do, they use a child's first name and their middle name, and then, you know, okay, that's that's time to cool it. And, and my students told me that their parents used to say, aquí viene Juan Diego, which means, here comes Juan Diego, and I'm going, well, wait a minute, why would he be a threat? And I, I, and uh, so I asked them to, to go home. I said, you know, I've heard this a, a number of times, but I don't really understand, you know, the uh, the story behind it. And so one one little girl went back and she came to class and said, I asked my mom, and she said that Juan Diego was just, he was just a symbol of controversy, I guess, because of the apparitions that were that that were there. So when he was around, there was always some kind of you know, dis, uh, disarray or, or whatever. So 
But I thought that was kind of an odd thing. Does anybody know that? You've never heard? I had a number of my kids tell me that, and, and I wondered if anybody knew. I thought that was really interesting. Well, God can use all of us. It's interesting that of all the saints that we have talked about in, in this class, every one of them has suffered in one way or another. First of all, by not being accepted uh, by the hierarchy of the church. Uh, they all demand proof. It, it, this is just an unusual, but yet the normal pattern. They all demand proof. And partly because for many centuries, the church did not believe that the average individual who was either a priest or a nun or a monk or a religious of some kind uh, could possibly uh, be holy enough to receive an apparition. And yet, we have found through uh, saints like Juan Diego that that isn't the case. God uses all kinds of people from all walks of life. And that's one of the things that we have to take uh, from this course here, is the fact that he can use all of us if we open our minds and hearts to him. Uh, you also have to be kind of uh, careful and aware of uh, the things that might change in your life and be able to accept them. Yeah, just Frank, just excuse me, Frank, just a minute. Well, when there still are more recent ongoing investigations and studies of, say, the I really don't know anymore. I'll just ask if there's any further research from the time of the DVD until now. I really have no idea. Uh, but I think that will go on forever. Uh, look at the Shroud of Turin. You know, that has been going on for centuries, and every new generation that comes along uh, wants to examine it uh, firsthand for their own purposes. So I don't think that there will ever be uh, an end to the investigation or the doubt, the doubt of the reality of these things. Oh. <clears throat> uh, I, uh, 
don't know if you could probably come up with other ideas like that too. But uh, Betty, are you aware of any translation of the word Guadalupe? Just, Frank just mentioned that there is a rough translation from the phrase she who crushed the head of the serpent. Is that what you're saying? What language did that mean? Well, the more I read that, it was uh, uh, in a book written by Bishop Buddy, who was a bishop of San Diego back in the 50s. And he had that in there. Now, if it's a not water word, as you asked it. Uh-huh. Well, that's interesting. Something that we can look into, see if you can find it again, uh, in the connection on that. Yeah, that would be an interesting, Bishop <laughs> Soto, yeah. Um, next week, next week will be our final week. What I'd like to do is a little bit of a, a summary, uh, and I would like to have any of you who would like to tell us who your favorite saint is, or who your favorite person that you feel should be a saint, or be recognized as a saint, uh, we'd like to have you uh, get up and tell us. Okay. Um, the other thing is, I would like to hear from you what you might want to study in future sessions of this kind. Uh, if we begin, if we have another session, it would be starting sometime in mid to late September. But it's important uh, that we get your input. No decision is going to be made tonight or next week, uh, but I'd like to hear from you what you would like to hear or discuss. And um, that would be very helpful for, for not only myself, but for Steve and uh, for uh, Father Steve as well. Any other questions? Yeah, well, I hope you got something out of this uh, session tonight. And we'll continue to think about not the whole idea of sainthood as something recognized by Rome or something that, where you have to pass uh, a test by Rome. The only thing that you need to do is to be open to the will of God. And I think praying about that and giving yourself in submission to God uh, is where you start. So let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you help us to open our minds and our hearts uh, to the whole idea of submission to your holy will, so that regardless of uh, what the future may bring, we know that you will be with us, guiding and directing us. So we thank you for this time together. 
We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.